I want to start by acknowledging that these are probably the worst texts for Father's Day ever. Abraham leaving Hagar and her son Ishmael, his son, in the wilderness to fend for themselves and possibly die. Not a great text for Father's Day. Then there's the psalmist who laments the hate that he is a target of and the poverty and misery in which he lives. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes to the church in Romans about suffering and sin and death. And then there is the gospel in which Jesus says, I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. And then goes on to say, your enemies will be members of your own household, son against father and daughter against mother. These are difficult texts. And not to deny the difficulties of them, or to whitewash them, or to defend the ways many of them have been used for ill. I'm not here for that. But as always, as I read and study scripture, I asked and I wonder, what is the good news? What is the liberating news in these messed up, or at least messy, sacred texts. Whatever makes them the worst texts for a celebration of relationship, can there also be something salvaged about relationship in them? So I want to be clear, I am not advocating picking the pretty parts of the scriptural text and leaving the ugliness in the dust. That would cheapen the good news, I think. And it's a temptation that we sometimes fall into. It is particularly hard for us in the United States of America to resist the temptation, to just see the good and run with it. Historian and theologian Justo Gonzalez wrote in his book, Manana, Christian Theology from a Hispanic Perspective. He wrote about the North American tendency to just hear the part of our history that helps us claim our innocence, claim our innocence about what was happening, or claim to live out our values since the foundation of the country. He points that out while he's urging us towards a deeper, holistic approach that will help us grapple, not gloss over or whitewash the history that is ours. So I'll give you an example of this. I had an older relative in Virginia who would, when telling the story of our family's long history in that state, in Virginia, 
this relative would say, and then the Indians faded away. What? How do people just fade away? And how can a good Christian person repeat that lie? It's a way to gloss over theft and violence, murder and illness and devastation to protect your own worldview. It's a temptation to lie. The point I'm trying to make here as when we, are in, when we are in honest conversation with history, with the history and the hard parts of our sacred texts, it's not a betrayal of the family. Being honest about what was wrong, not covering up the theft, violence, and devastation, may in fact save us from justifying it, which is to save us from lying about ourselves. It may save us from repeating things because we haven't justified them. It may save us from the blasphemy of saying certain things that keep people subjugated are God's will. So let's talk about Hagar. There are very few stories of women so well drawn out in the Bible and women from a subjugated position in society are even fewer. So this is a precious text, a precious story. The Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney wrote in her blog about this text this week that the cry, or I would say the chant that you might hear in some of the, the protests and vigils going on, the cry, say her name, accompanies the cry, the chant, Black Lives Matter, as a reminder that violence is often gendered as is the response and the outcry which often follows. So she's urging us to say, to claim, to know that Breonna Taylor, Sandra Bland, and others must be named. Reverend Dr. Gaffney says, all black life matters because black life is sacred, reflecting and embodying the God who dwells in the holiest of deep darkness. In this story, the central person is Hagar, named Hagar. And it's not her real name, but a name applied to her in place of her given name. I don't know if I pronounce it right, but I read that Hagar sounds like the Hebrew word meaning foreign, alien, or sojourner. 
And in the womanist text, it says that Hagar, in stating the obvious, is female, foreign, and enslaved. She is used and abused. And there is no way to soften her story or her experience. The first time we encounter her in, in, in the scripture text is earlier in Genesis. She is used by Sarah and Abraham to secure an heir. And Sarah then beats her mercilessly. Hagar runs away and God meets her there in her running and in the wilderness. God sees her, speaks to her, calls her name, and then in an incredibly important action, one that's not granted to anyone else in the canon of scripture, Hagar names God. In Genesis 16, 13, Hagar names God the God of seeing. She is the only person, this enslaved foreign female, that gives God a name. God sees her, she sees God, they name each other, but then she goes back to Sarah and Abraham. And it doesn't get any better. We encounter her again in the Genesis text today. Genesis 20. This time, even in the midst of abundance and celebration, the privilege feel threatened by her. The privileged are often threatened by what they see as a potential challenge to their position and possessions. And in this text, they are threatened by her, this woman, this foreigner, this enslaved one. Sarah demands that Hagar and Ishmael are exiled to death in the wilderness. And Abraham takes them out there into the wilderness to fend for themselves, mother and child, with just a little bit of provision to soothe his conscience. They are on the verge of starvation when God hears the child's cry and God sees Hagar and opens her eyes to something new. She finds water. She and her son survive and thrive against all odds, and that's where our text ends today. So the story of Abraham leaving Hagar and her son in the wilderness to die is also the story of her survival, of their survival. God doesn't see as the privileged see, as everything being a zero-sum game, what I don't have, 
or what you get I don't have. God sees the single mother trying to keep keep her child alive. God hears the lament of the young boy crying out for his mama, for his life. God sees them in in their otherness, in the wilderness, and makes them a home because they are his own. We are invited to see as God sees and listen as God listens and to help each other thrive. We are invited not just to use others when we think we need them and cast them away when they are no longer useful. We are invited to see in these difficult texts an invitation to see not just the casting out, but the lifting up of Hagar. In the psalm, not just to see the hate and poverty and misery, but the trust and the protest and lament as honest conversation with a God who cares and listens. To see the psalmist's faithfulness. In Romans, amongst all the talk of sin and death and suffering, we are to see baptism and resurrection. And even in this gospel, we are called to put God above all else, no matter how hard it gets, and to look at the sparrows to see the extent of God's love and knowing us. So, what does this invitation mean for us specifically today? It means continued probing of our own racism so that we may build a more anti-racist community. It means more than that, but that's where we will focus now. We have begun, but it's a baby step. So hold on to your faith through the hard stories we will tell, and remember that there is a that there is good news and a beautiful story to tell as we struggle with the truth. Amen.